This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. So you've got a sick fish. Who are you going to call? Why, your local fish veterinarian, of course. Although pet owners don't think twice about contacting their vets for their dogs or cats problems, more and more hobbyists are now seeking help from their local veterinarian as well to help with disease in their pet fish. And this is perfect timing since more and more veterinarians are willing and able to work on wet pet patients. One of the country's leading pet fish veterinarians, Dr. Helen Roberts, has been working in the field since the early 90s and has worked with numerous fish species from all types of aquaria and ponds. She has gained the confidence of many clients who travel for hours with their fish or fly her out just to get her help. Join us as we learn more about some of her favorite cases and how today's veterinarians can help you with your fish. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Helen Roberts of Aquatic Veterinary Services in New York. Hi, Helen. Thanks again for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Yanong. Well, you know, we've known each other for quite a while, and I definitely have always been impressed with all the work you've done with a lot of the aquarium fish hobbyists and, and uh, pond owners, and I know your uh, expertise is highly sought after by many of these folks. Now, there's people on the other end who maybe have their aquarium set up for the first time or are dealing with fish that maybe they consider a little less expensive. So first question is, why, why would you want to treat a pet fish or why, why does someone seek your help with their pet fish? Well, I get um, most of my calls, you'd be surprised to hear, are not for the expensive fish, but they're actually for the free or um, inexpensive fish. And it's because we form an emotional bond to these pets just like we do to our dogs and cats. And for some people, I, they see no difference in how they feel about their fish than they do their dog or their cat. So that definitely makes sense. And I know uh, people do form you know, really strong bonds with some, with some of these smaller fish and that would lead them to you. Now, how does traditional pet practice, and I know you also have a really successful small animal and exotic animal practice, um, differ when you're working with fish and, uh, you know, these, the types of systems these animals are in? Well, the nice thing about an aquatic practice is that it actually gets me out of the clinic. Uh, in a traditional practice, 
and I have a small and exotic practice, the people and the animals come to me. And while that still happens with fish, in most cases, I actually go to the site where the fish is, be it a pond or in an aquarium. And the advantage to that is that I get to evaluate the environment, which, as you know, is so important in how we keep fish. And I don't go to people's homes and look at, you know, their dog food bowl or anything like that. But it's, it's very important when you're evaluating fish to see how they live and um, under what conditions they live. I know you've been in practice for quite a long time. You know, I, I guess not the 1800s, right, but, but, but maybe in the 1990s. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've seen kind of the changes in, in terms of how people handle their sick fish and, and obviously as well there's there are sick um, exotics like reptiles do you see any kind of parallels between how people maybe initially started handling disease in you know some of these other species groups like reptiles and amphibians and, and then how they're handling fish now oh sure I mean probably one of the best examples is uh, with birds and you know not when I was in school but way back when you were still in school um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it used to be unheard of in the 60s and 70s for people to find a veterinarian who was familiar with working on um, a pet bird. And now you have board certification in avian medicine. And it would be nice to see, and I think that we're probably on track for that, to have some sort of specialty or peer-recognized or um, association-recognized specialization in aquatic animals, which covers a huge range of species, but at least in the, the companion animal or pet uh, department, that would be nice to have. And I do see it happening. That's great. So now there are a lot more potential routes to find you, but what are the common ways people will be able to find you or, or locate, you know, veterinarians, I guess, uh, since it's not something that's still still not quite traditional in many areas. The way most people find me is either through word of mouth or there's a database online um, that people can search for a veterinarian in their state who deals with ornamental aquatic animals, and they'll find me that way. And also, I deal with a lot of the local water garden centers and pet stores, and people will uh, go in and talk to them. I'll get referrals from that way, and also from the local colleagues. So, we going back to the, the whole financial uh, question, and, and as we discussed, definitely a lot of strong bonds formed between you know people and, and their, their pets, but what, what's involved with people spending money on, on a fish, you know, whether it's in terms of keeping it or, or seeking your help? A number of things. I mean, people have fish for a number of reasons. One is they're a pet. One is they add aesthetics. And I'm sure many people have seen when they go into the doctor's office, you'll see a fish tank or a dentist's office or a business office um, so in, in their backyard, a, a water garden uh, with some fish in it can add aesthetics if you're a gardener, um, but mostly these people have an affinity or a bond to their animals, and that's why they will seek help. Nobody likes to see an animal in distress, and they want to do everything they can to help that animal if there's a, a way to help it, and that's most of the reasons why I would get called. Okay. So what are some of the common cases that you normally see? What, what, are, what are common problems that people will end up seeking your help for? I'm sure uh, you've talked about that on your program, but the most common 
reason I will be called for or the most common diagnosis I will see is poor water quality. And it, it's very common to have uh, a lack of patience when we're setting up systems. People want to go to the store and buy the tank, buy all the accessories, and fill it up with water and just add fish. And I've had cases ranging from not adding any water conditioning, so immediately the fish can all be killed by chlorine or chloramine toxicity, or within the first few days, of the tank is filled with fish and, and the kids are happy and we're overfeeding the fish and all of a sudden there's an ammonia uh, spike and all the fish can die that way. Um, ammonia toxicity and nitrite toxicity are probably the most common reasons I get called out. Another common reason would be um, infectious diseases, the most common being parasites. And if you have a nice closed system that's doing very well, all the fish are healthy, and you can buy fish from a questionable source, um, or you buy fish that are displaying signs of illness, and add them to that closed system, a lot of those fish can break with disease, and parasites are probably the most common disease uh, that I see. So I, I guess this kind of brings a couple major points that might be real good for you to, to go into a little more detail. What, what are some of the maybe the do's and don'ts people should do when they're setting up a tank or, or, or maybe things that people maybe get a little complacent about and they need a little, little bit more um, to be a little more careful about? Um, well, I think in the beginning when you're first setting up a tank, it's very important to research the species that you want to keep, what temperatures, uh, what water quality parameters, some fish like a nice soft water, some like hard water, acid, alkaline, all these different uh, parameters that you can keep fish in. So researching a species, also researching what species are compatible. Obviously, you don't want to keep carnivorous fish with smaller fish that it may regard as prey or food. Um, the other thing is, is not uh, keeping tropical fish with some of the cooler water fish. They may do okay, but it's not an ideal situation. Uh, betas, I see, are probably one of the most common species that are not kept in ideal situations. Yes, they will survive under uh, stressful situations or not ideal situations, but there are better ways to keep them than we commonly see. Going back, so for the for the betas, what what are some common things you're seeing in terms of how people are keeping betas that that's not ideal? Well. Um, for a while, there was a, it was quite popular to keep them in vases with a plant on them, and people were told, well, you don't need to feed them. They will eat the microorganisms that grow on the roots of the plant or the, the plant itself. And as far as doing any water changes, rarely was the water actually changed. It was basically topped off from evaporation or use by the plant. And that was more of a decorative item. And I don't really think an live animals should be used for decor if we're not going to take care of, of their needs. Um, another way to keep them is in an unheated, unfiltered bowl where they just, they just don't do very well. There's no circulation in there. The water's not changed. And they have dramatic temperature swings depending on where they're kept. I've seen them kept in windows, which depending on where you live, you're not going to have a, an ideal temperature year-round. Does that help? <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Going back to the some of the do's and don'ts, if you could go back to some of the um, common problems that you see or the things that people should um, be 
Um, the other thing, when you're looking to buy fish, there are certain symptoms that you should look for in a healthy fish. The fish, you know, take the time to actually look at that specific fish. If the dorsal fins up, the, the pectoral fins, those front fins on the side are, are straight out, the fish is swimming around and appears, um, I don't want to say happy, but appears to be normal, and it's moving in the water where it's supposed to be, it's interacting with its environment and showing normal behavior, that may be the sign of a healthy fish. A lot of clients that I've had actually will feel sorry for a fish that's kind of floating off to the side or not moving very much or one that has a big uh, gash on its side or a tumor, and they will actually pick the sick fish. That's not ideal because you're already purchasing problems when that happens. Um, so you want to look for a fish that looks normal, symmetrical, and is swimming around showing normal behavior for that species. Going back to some even kind of questions on figuring out what is wrong with fish, what are your thoughts on uh, message boards, emails, you know, that sort of thing? I think that the message boards and emails all have their place, and it's a good place for idea exchanges. The problem is... As a veterinarian, I'm going to employ diagnostics in order to determine what the problem is. And so you can get an email or post on a message board, my koi has a red spot. And they get 10 responses that say, oh, yeah, every time there's a red spot on a koi, it means this. Well, and you know that, is it an ulcer? Is it uh, a growth? Um, and when you're looking at ulcers, you know, there's so many different causes for that, that that is lost when we're looking at message boards and emails. There's only so much information that can be transmitted that way. In terms of water quality, what, what do you recommend to your clients? You know, how, how do, should they be testing themselves? What, you know, what sort of uh, tests should they, they run? What I recommend for the pond clients in particular um, is to start testing in the spring. In my area in um, western New York, it's quite cold, and we'll, our ponds will start about April or May. And what I suggest to clients is when they open up their ponds is start the water testing and do water changes as appropriate, but at least have some sort of regular testing. And also in the fall, before they close the pond, do some regular testing. As far as any other situation, when you first set up a system, a pond or an aquarium, you should test maybe daily, maybe weekly, or several times weekly, depending on the results you get. If every time you're testing, you're getting normal results, that's great. It's unlikely to happen in a new setup. But what you should do is find a regular routine that works for you. So that way, if you get a pH of 6.5, you will know, well, is this normal for my system or the last 10 times I've checked the pH, it's always been 7.5, and maybe this could indicate a problem that could happen, and I can prevent that problem. So what parameters, again, did you think are, are really optimal to test for? The parameters I recommend testing for are pH, temperature, ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, and uh, hardness. Okay. If people want to be more advanced, they can also check for um, dissolved oxygen and copper, um, salinity, even in a freshwater if they're using salt. Okay, that's great. That's definitely great advice. Well, I think we're going to have to take a, a short break, but I really wanted to talk to you a little bit more about some of the real interesting cases you've had as well as some of the fish you see. I know you do a lot of surgery, and uh, 
people are always fascinated with uh, doing surgery on fish and what's involved with that. So let's take a short break and uh, hear from our sponsors, and then we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Helen Roberts about wet pet fish and how to work with veterinarians who can help you with your diseased fish. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and we're continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Helen Roberts of Aquatic Veterinary Services in New York. So, Helen, we've talked a lot about some of the maybe common problems and some of the reasons more people are seeing veterinarians and maybe ways that they can try to, to find veterinarians that will work with them and their fish. Um, I know you, as we mentioned, have been working in, in this field for hundreds of years, I think, but um, for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I really want to hear some of the cases you've had. I know you've had some really interesting cases, including surgery and really, really large masses and that sort of thing. So can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about some of these cases and, and let our, uh, our listeners get a little sense of what veterinarians can do as well? Sure. Um, well, one of the, the most interesting cases I had, and you know, as a veterinarian, we get to do surgery, and that's one of my favorite things to actually do, is I had a, a koi presented, and the kind of sad thing, the reason this uh, person decided to try and find a veterinarian is the koi had belonged to the person's wife and she had passed away and, and this fish was the last kind of link that he had to his wife, the last living link. So he brought in this koi and one of the things he said is that it looked like it was eating a lot and when he looked at it, this fish was huge, had a huge distended salomic cavity or abdomen is what people might call it. And so we decided after doing some x-rays and some other tests that this is most likely a tumor that was in there. And he made the decision to go ahead with surgery in an attempt to see if we could remove this tumor. And it may surprise people to know that in preparation for surgery, we do a lot of the same things that you would have done or your pets would have done, your other pets. So we do blood work. Um and make sure that everything's set up and uh, we have a surgery table with a positioning device and we deliver the anesthetic, with, which is a liquid anesthetic, to the fish and we adjust the level depending on how the fish is doing. Well, during the surgery, I ended up removing a mass. It was an ovarian mass that actually weighed more than the fish did. And after surgery, the fish looked like it had just had a huge 
uh, tummy tuck. It was kind of all sucked in and uh, really empty looking. But this fish in six weeks, when it came back for a uh, recheck, looked great, removed the sutures, and it went on to live another year. Unfortunately, the tumor came back, but we were able to give the owner and the fish another year. Um, the fish before surgery did not have a name, and after surgery, and she did so well, we decided to name her, and um, might be surprised to hear that the name was Lucky. Lucky. So, so how big was Lucky, and how big was the tumor? Lucky weighed, without the tumor, about one and a half pounds, about just under three-quarters of a kilogram. The tumor itself weighed about a kilogram or two pounds. So, so did, it was did, quite large. Yeah, that is huge. So so I guess, what, is, is that a common reason that people will have surgery done to, you know, to remove that, those types of tumors, or is that, is that something you see a lot? Um, I see a lot more of external tumors, and obviously that's because the people can see them more, too. Um, when you see the distension of the fish, and sometimes that can be due to a tumor. And if it's caught in the early stages, successful removal is quite possible. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, but in a lot of cases, it can be successful. Um, the external masses, most of those are successful when they're removed early before they get too big. But they can, uh, the diagnosis from those masses can be uh, anything from squamous cell carcinoma, which is a skin cancer, or melanoma, which people have, uh, are, may be familiar with, to all kinds of other in, infections, things like that. So what's the risk for people, um, let's say that they have a, a koi or another fish with a, with a mass either inside or outside, what's the risk of the fish's survival or how, how have you had, or what, what kind of, what's your um, success rate with removing these tumors and in, in, in these fish? For the internal ones, it's probably been about 60 to 70 percent uh, success. And that generally depends on how soon the owner notices and brings the fish in. Um, the longer they wait, the bigger the tumor can get. And that, those are on the internal tumors. For the external tumors, you're probably looking at closer to 90, 90-95%. Uh, now, success means that the fish will survive the surgery and go on for a while. Long-term success may be quite different depending on the actual diagnosis. And if it's a really, really invasive type of cancer, it can come back, unfortunately. Okay. Now, in, in addition to kind of these masses, what, what other um, common problems do you see that you have to actually maybe do some, some more advanced type techniques? I know you mentioned something about goldfish eating gravel. What, what was that yeah. about? Uh, well, we, we've seen that in our pet uh, fish a lot of times where those kind of aspirate and, and spit out the gravel, and that's very common. But occasionally in koi and goldfish, I've seen this, is where the gravel can become lodged in what's, um, where their throat would be. Um, and what happens is they're hungry and they look like they want to eat and they approach the food, but when they get close to the food, they just don't eat. And it's kind of neat. I had The last case I had was a little tiny goldfish, and we had the uh, owners actually brought it into the clinic, and it probably was about a third the size of my hand, and they brought in this little goldfish, and they picture a whole family, there's about four people in this exam room, all looking over this tiny little goldfish, very worried and concerned. So we anesthetized the goldfish, and 
look down the mouth with the same instrument that can be used to look in ears of animals, the otoscope, and I saw a little tiny piece of gravel. So I was able to reach in and pull this out, and you could almost hear the whole, everybody had been holding their breath, and there was like a big sigh of relief, and then the goldfish woke up and actually ate an hour after it went home. That's so it great. Also shows you how tough these guys are. I forgot. Did you say how long had it not been eating? About five days. Five days, okay. Yeah, in some cases, if it goes on long enough, you'll actually have an ulcer or a hole develop in the lower part of the jaw where the rock or a piece of gravel can be, especially if it's a sharp piece, and it'll actually start to work its way down and cause some uh, injury to the, the skin. So, obviously, fish like to eat. Have you had any other kind of interesting things that have been eaten by some of your uh, fish patients? I've had uh, so just some interesting food art items. I know that a colleague of mine had a red-tailed catfish that ate a plastic plant. And as you and your listeners probably know, red-tailed catfish have huge mouths, and anything that will fit in those mouths is fair game. And after living with this plastic plant in the tank for a while, the fish all of a sudden decided it might be a food item. So uh, she had to go in and remove the plastic plant, and it did very well post-operatively. Another uh, common um, problem in fish that requires a surgical intervention is trauma. And in the pond fish, you see a lot of heron injuries, um, but also you can see injuries. I've treated betas that get sucked up into the filter intakes in um, aquaria uh, where fish are held together that are not compatible, um, and they'll fight. And you can have loss of fins and tails and all kinds of injuries that way. So with some of those, what do you do uh, treatment-wise? You know, if you've got maybe a beta that's got a lot of tail injuries or fin injuries, what, what kind of um, well, treatment can you do for them? What I've used have actually been, and these are um, extra label uses of drugs, which we can do in pet fish, is I've actually used some of the same anti-inflammatory medications that we use in dogs or cats and also treat the injury, the area of injury itself. Sometimes if you have some shredded pieces those need to be trimmed. Uh, you have to maintain them in excellent water quality and make sure they're eating. Um, most of the medications I'll give are injectable to start, and then we may or may not continue them. But the ones that I've treated um, do pretty well. It takes, depending on the extent of the injury, it can take a long time for the tail, especially in the betas, to grow back. But in a lot of cases, it may, it may not look as good as the original tail or, or uh, fins, but a lot of times it'll grow back and look pretty good. Now, you mentioned uh, x-rays or radiographs a while ago. What I think people would probably be interested to hear, what, what kind of things would you be looking for, and how do fish you know, x-rays look diff compared to other animals or people? Um, I think fish on an x-ray always look like chickens with fins. <laughs> but their heads always look like chickens to me. Um, but a couple of things that we'll look at for x-rays, um, one is if the for a buoyancy problem where the fish is, is not um, is floating either up towards the top or sinking down towards the bottom, and it, that's not normal for that fish. We see that in a lot of goldfish. Um, we'll do radiographs, or when the um, saloma cavity or abdomen is distended, looking for tumors. Um, one other technique that you can do, and we just did this with our own clinic goldfish, is uh, give them a um, barium series or a contrast study. And 
uh, to try and outline a mass that's internal to see if it involves the intestinal system or the swim bladder, things like that. One thing that you can see in outdoor fish is sometimes spinal injuries from uh, electrocution from lightning or straight voltage, and those show up on x-rays. Okay, so definitely, yeah, because I know I, I know many times, as you mentioned on some of the boards, people want want a one to one relationship between what a fish looks like and what the cause is. It sounds like there's a, quite a few tools that you you need to use really to figure out what's going on. There's a, um, some work being done now with endoscopy where you can actually instead of opening them all the way up, you can go in with a small endoscope and you know maybe get some biopsies of some organs, liver biopsies or kidney biopsies and, you know, see if you can determine what's going on, and it's a little bit less invasive than, you know, opening them all the way up. So, in terms of your, your uh, fish patients, what would you say your, your largest and your smallest patients have been? Um, the smallest, pa- smallest patient was a neon tetra that, had, um, that was distended or bloated, and the largest patient so far is a uh, three-and-a-half-foot red-tailed catfish that's the largest tropical. The largest koi um, is a shagoi, a variety of koi that's about four feet long, and I can fit my hand into her mouth up to about my elbow. What was going on with uh, the neon? Were you able to help the neon tetra patient? Um, yes, I aspirated a small amount of fluid from the um, swelling, and we cultured that but also made a stain of that and started it on some medication. And it lived for quite a while um, after that. I don't think they're a particularly long-lived species, but I think that we were able to help it live a little bit longer. And how about your uh, your your catfish, the big catfish you mentioned? Uh, the red-tailed catfish had some problems with anorexia and wasn't eating. So for that fish, we did ultrasound. It also had a small tumor on it, and we took that off. We ran some blood work, and it had some liver abnormalities, so we treated uh, for that, and now it's doing great and uh, getting bigger. I first met that fish when it was three inches long, and like I said, now it's three and a half feet long, so it's doing quite well. That's great. That's great. I know. Now, I know you sent, and we're, and I uh, definitely appreciate you sent us some pictures we're going to put on the on our blog site. You have a pretty large shovel nose, tiger shovel nose, is that right? Yes. Yeah, what was up with him? Uh, Mr. Cuddles also was experiencing some anorexia, and we uh, force-fed him for about three months. Every two to three weeks, we would force-feed him and uh, treat him with medications, and then finally he started eating. He was very susceptible to any change in water quality. So how do you force-feed a uh, very large catfish? (laughs) Um, Well, they're anesthetized, and what I do is I mix up a gruel, and uh, put it in a very large oral syringe, and we deposit the food right in through the esophagus uh, into the uh, intestinal tract, stomach and intestinal tract. So, wow, that's, so that must take a lot of uh, time and patience, I would think, on both yours and the, uh, the owners, as well as the fishes. Oh, the owners are, <laughs> oh yeah, the owners are great. <laughs> oh, that's great. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and uh, I, really, I really appreciate all the uh, insights I think you've given us with regard to veterinarians and their abilities to really help with a lot of problems that aquarium fish owners and, and pond owners see with their animals. I think there's definitely been a lot more being done, and you've been really at the forefront of a lot of this over the years in terms of educating 
both the uh, hobbyists as well as the veterinarians and uh, trying to get those two groups together uh, a bit more so they can um, work together more closely. I want to thank you again very much, Dr. Helen Roberts, and also our producers, especially Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Helen, did, uh, did you have any final words you want to share with our listeners? Sure. I would say the, um, the best thing to get out of all this is that veterinarians can actually be helpful when dealing with sick fish, and sometimes it's a good idea to give them a call, find them. Thanks again, Helen, for joining us. Please be sure to check out Helen's web pages. The links will be on Aquarium Mania on her bio page. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on PetLifeRadio.com. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at DrRoy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And if you need to contact a veterinarian, be sure to do so. They can definitely help you with your fish. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.